My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. Uh, think thethink.institute, also yep. YouTube page, The Think Institute. He's a really cool Christian apologist. Uh, and he's very nice, um, pretty well read, and patient, actually. <laughs> um, all great uh, attributes to have. Um, so, uh, Joel, if you're ready, uh, we can go ahead and start taking questions. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Um, as before, Joel may be recording um, for his own purposes. So, yes. Uh, be warned. Um, if you want to ask questions, put an AMA questions chat at the top. If you want to ask uh, yourself, just put VC in the question before your question so I know to unmute you so you can talk. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. We'll go with an easy one. Actually, hold on a second. Uh, no, a hard one. I don't know. Oh, it's kind of obscure. Great. Uh, yeah, can you comment on early church views of sacerdotalism? Uh, a common argument that I see is that uh, no one opposed it for the first 1,500 years, so it must represent the original church, quote-unquote. Hmm. Um, so sacerdotalism, the belief that priests act as mediators between God and humans— uh, you know, I'm, this is probably above my pay grade. Um, I, what I would just say is that when it comes to any kind of doctrine or church tradition, the ultimate guide is never history or, or, um, or even, uh, or you might say autonomous reason. It's always scripture. So, when it comes to, you know, who's the mediator between God and man, um, well, the scripture is clear that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name given from heaven among men by which we must be saved. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So that excludes all rivals right away, right from the get-go. So the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Romanist idea that um, a mere mortal man can stand in the place between God and man in any way analogous to what Jesus does is an unbiblical idea. There are ways that we intercede for one another. As a father, in a sense, I stand between my family and God in that I'm the head of the household. I represent my family. I represent them before God in prayer, but I'm not a mediator in the, in the sense, in any sense that Jesus is because Jesus is my mediator, just like he's my wife and, and kids mediator. Um, Jesus is the priest. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice. Jesus offered the blood. Um, so, so all of the, all those old 
testament, those beautiful images, those types and shadows of Yom Kippur, Passover, those all point to the Lord Jesus. He's our one mediator. So the uh, even if it were uncontested, which I really can't speak to that. I don't think that's true. But even if it were uncontested, Scripture would have been contesting it. So that's this is all predicated on the idea that I do understand what the question is asking. Um, if that's the case, then I would say that there's been a witness against sacerdotalism since the since the beginning. Excellent. All right. Cool. Hope that satis- satisfies you. Um, we have well, um, a combo question from Maximo. Um, quote: Is God's essence one? And if yes then why, quote-unquote, why worship God through a trinity? Hmm. Is God's essence one? Yes, God's essence is one. Uh, the Shema in um, in the Torah, which was the most important belief that the, the Jewish people had, the Israelite people had, goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or Yahweh our God, the um, Yahweh is one. There's different ways of interpreting that, but, but yes, it's, it's absolutely true that God's essence is one. Um, and yet the word for one is echad, which is, which is the form of one that is not restricted to a mere monad, but actually can encompass plurality within the one. Um, we get a little bit of that, like if we, you know, if we say like mono versus uni, you know, those different prefixes, they both mean one, but they carry different connotations, maybe. Um, think about the term that's on our, uh, I believe, on our coins, e pluribus unum, if you're in the United States, out of many, one. Um, so, God's nature is one, but God's nature is also three. God's essence is one, He is, um, and yet he, he is three persons as well. So why do we worship God through a trinity? That's not technically theologically correct. We worship God in the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then he has given you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who unites himself to you and prays and actually intercedes on your behalf, actually prays on your behalf along with your spirit. And you might say we pray to the Father through the Holy Spirit in, sorry, to the Father in the Son, to the to, here we go, to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so when we're going to God, even our prayer is Trinitarian. So our belief is Trinitarian. The Bible, the Bible teaches, um, Trinity, the, the triune nature of God. But it's important to remember that that's, that's, um, that right in the word Trinity, it's triune, three and one. So, um, we, why do we do it? Because scripture tells us to. Jesus says that we are to be baptized as disciples in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this doctrine is is thoroughly biblical, and then it also explains reality as we understand it. You know, philosophers for millennia have been trying to solve the problem of the one and the many, the um, uh, you know unity, and then the particulars, um, instances, and then the categories that that unite them. And the trini- and and so the question is, what's more fundamental, diversity or unity, oneness or plurality? And the Trinity solves that problem because it turns out that both oneness and multiplicity or diversity are equally ultimate. They're both equally fundamental because both um, arise from God's nature. So when God created the universe, he didn't just create one thing, a monad, nor did he create a universe of totally separate, discrete um, particulars. But we have the particulars and we have the unifying principles like categories, like um, uh, uh, unifying principles that that unite those particulars together. So we get the doctrine of the Trinity from the Bible. We get it from Jesus himself, although it's certainly alluded to in the Old Testament. I did a podcast episode of that uh, addressing that with um, Egal German. We talked about the Trinity 
revealed in the Old Testament. Um, but then it also accords with our experience of reality as well. It solves a lot of really hard philosophical problems. Um, okay. Uh, Maximo's kind of taking up the questions. If you guys want to ask any question you want to ask Joel, it's up to you. Um, so... Okay, we have one. Okay, beef jerky, please uh, deliver because I don't want to give all the questions to Maximo. Sorry. Oh, he's typing. Oh, pressure. Um, Maximo, do you want to have an exchange really quick with uh, um, Joel on this question? Because it looks like you have uh, some... Okay, no worries. Um... So I'll go ahead and unmute Maximo so he can elaborate a little bit on his questions. Go ahead. You're unmuted, Maximo. You might have your own mic muted, I think. There you go. Hello? Okay, there we go. Yeah, so I guess my question is, why, if, if God's essence is truly one, why even pay attention to the plurality at all? Like, why... Why, why not worship God through the essence and in the essence? Um, because anything else would be a mediator, right? Like, uh, and we just spoke about, uh, your sacerdotalism and how there shouldn't be any mediators between you and God. So why, why not just worship his essence? Well, we do. His essence is one and three. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus said, that's how we must worship God. So when we think about God, it's very important that we don't put our preferences or our philosophy, um, or what the Bible calls knowledge falsely so-called, ahead of what God has revealed about himself. So in scripture, we see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if we want to worship God and, and go to God, we need to go to God as he has prescribed, as he has revealed himself. And so um, what's very interesting is that God's nature is revealed in a narrative that spans 1,500 years, three continents, three languages, and 40 different authors. And that's that's the Bible. In Scripture, we see this grand narrative of the gospel. The gospel means the good news. And the good news is that while we were yet sinners, um, God the Father sent God the Son to save us from our sins, even though the wages of sin is death. So God the Son died for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven, and then together with the Father sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to indwell the church. So we have the Holy Spirit individually and then the Holy Spirit corporately in the church. So our relationship to God is we come to him not by our own merits or works or anything good in and of ourselves, but we come to him having our way cleared by the shed blood of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we don't know what we ought to pray, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So God's nature is triune. Uh, the story of redemption is bound up with that trinity, is is revealed in Trinitarian form. And then our access to God is um, is is expressed in a, a, tr- a triune way as well. So I guess what I'm saying is like if if his essence is one, why why even you know um, focus on on his nature on his plural plural nature well because uh, again again it's it's a one that is um that is diverse within itself within himself so the short answer is because that's what the bible says and so we we have a revealed epistemology we have a revealed metaphysics meaning Christianity is not a man-made philosophy where we're trying to work our way up from observable phenomena to God to try to think what God would would be like. Rather, we 
we access God through the revelation that he's given us. And so what we do is we go to scripture and we say, what has God revealed? Okay, God's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is how he tells us to worship him. So by worshiping him this way, we're, we're being obedient. Christianity, he wasn't revealed in this way. Like, I don't believe there are Trinitarian Jews. Like I've never. Oh, sure there are. Yeah, there there are absolutely Trinitarian Jews. I'm I'm married to one. Because <laughs> they're Christians, you know. What? But what I mean is, like before before Christianity, there were no uh, Trinitarian Jews. Like a, a Jew that believed in in a three natured God, a tri natured God. Yeah. So God's revelation is revealed progressively. So you bring up a good point there. That being said, I happen to be of the opinion that natural revelation or uh, general revelation itself does actually point to a trinity. The trinity is one of those things that when you realize that that's God's nature, you look around at creation and you go, oh, that makes sense. I can't believe I missed that. You know, so we look at like the laws of logic. We look at the unity and diversity in nature and we go, oh, of course, God would have to be triune in order for creation to be the way it is. But you're right. God didn't expressly reveal that to us in you know, uh, propositions prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. So thank God that God did send Jesus because it makes a whole lot of sense out of creation um, that, we, that we experience. Now, that being said, the way that God revealed himself, even in the Old Testament, um, actually accords very well with a trying conception of God. And again, I've done a podcast episode of my podcast, which is called the Think Podcast, uh, with a, a theologian named Egal German. And we talked about the allusions to the Trinity in the Old Testament. So again, it's one of those things where once you understand that God is triune, you can look out at nature and you can look back at the Old Testament. And you can say, of course, God is triune. That's why you can have the angel of the Lord, which means the messenger of the Lord speaking to the Israelite people and accepting worship as God. And yet that's not blasphemous. Um, it's because he's the second person of the Trinity. That's why when Jesus shows on the scene, we can get statements in the New Testament that says, of a nice Jesus right there, like you're kind of presupposing that he's the second person of the, the Trinity. Well, no, it's just an angel. Well, if it's an angel, then it's a fallen angel because no angel ever accepts worship as God. Um, that would be totally inconsistent with the, the witness of the rest of scripture. And again, the angel who comes is the angel of Yahweh. He's the angel of the Lord. So he's not a fallen angel. He does, he. Isn't it Metatron? Uh, Metatron is a Gnostic concept and it's, it's possible that Metatron is Jesus, um, but there's there certainly is a, a conception. So even even right there, you're obviously aware of some of the Second Temple Judaism, I, Ju, uh, Judaic ideas that there was like a second Yahweh, a second power in heaven. You know, Metatron. What that is is, to the best of my understanding, those are those are pre. Christian attempts to understand how there can be an angel of the Lord who accepts worship as God. But you also have the Holy Spirit um, acting analogously in the Old Testament to how he acts in the New Testament era and, and in the current era, the church era. So um, you've got him, you know, um, uh, resting on Saul, or you've got him empowering Samson, or, you know, he's clearly not an impersonal force. He's clearly personal. Um, David prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So he's, he's, he's dwelling with David. And in the new covenant era, after Pentecost, we find that all believers have that same Holy Spirit. So, you know, um, when you put the data together in the Old Testament, um, and in light of the New Testament, which is how we must interpret Scripture, because again, Scripture is progressively revealed, the Trinity makes sense of both the Old and the New Testament. And we have that codified or solidified in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, where it says, in the past, God spoke at many times in many ways, but in these la last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right there, we have the interpretive principle. It's not eisegesis. It's actually exegesis. Um, and it's it's very much in line with the principle of the analogy, uh, analogia fide, the, the analogy of faith, which is that scripture interprets scripture. So when Jesus comes, that's God revealing himself in human form, that he now is our interpretive principle for everything that's come before, which scripture says, which Paul says it was written for our instruction. 
Um, but Jesus authenticates the Old Testament and he also authorizes the publication of the New Testament when he says the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth and remind you of everything that I've said. So, uh, so no, to answer your question, it's not exe- it's not eisegesis, it's exegesis and, um, it's reading in, in, it's reading scripture in the way that scripture prescribes itself to be read, which is through the lens of redemption, through the lens of the gospel, ultimately through the lens of Jesus Christ. All right. Excellent. I'm going to, I'm going to catch you guys the exchange off. If you want to have a, another question later, Maximo, I'll go ahead and unmute you. If I'm going to server meet you, just let me know. Uh, at the end, if I do mute you, um, uh, if you're leaving the room, I can unmute you. So that's just how the server, the the, the room works. Uh, next question. Again, you can ask your questions in AMA questions chat just above here. And if you want to talk with Joel or ask him the question yourself, just put BC in the question. Um, so beef jerky, uh, do you believe, it says, uh, do you believe that God, uh, the God that the Christians, Muslims, and Jews believe in is the same one? Well, by definition, there's only one true God. Um, so the God of the Muslims, the God of the uh, Jews, and the God of Christians, if if any of them are worshiping the true God, then it must be the same God, by definition. Um, ontologically, there can literally only be one God, but by definition. That being said, you have to look at the definitions that they use. Uh, for the Muslims, they worship a monad a Unitarian concept of God. God is not triune. Um, modern day rabbinical Judaism also worships a monadic, monadic concept of God, a Unitarian concept of God, whereas the Bible teaches God is triune, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the true God is triune, and Jesus in John 14, 6 says that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying there is not just that he's a prophet and no one comes to the Unitarian God um, except through him, but he's he's calling God Father, therefore indicating um He's talking about God the Father as the first person of the Trinity. So he's alluding to the Trinitarian God, the true God. And he's saying that I, Jesus, am the access point by which all men must come to God. So um, in that sense, because God is triune and Islam and modern-day rabbinical Judaism do not worship the triune God, by definition, they, they, it must not be the same God. And a quick and easy way to get there is to ask a Muslim person and a Jewish person if they believe Jesus is God, if they believe Jesus is Yahweh, um, or, or you might even say, is Yahweh God to the Muslim? And they, they might try to say, well, yeah, Yahweh is Allah, but then Yahweh is triune. So um, definitionally, they cannot be the same God. Now, as to, you know, what happens when a Jewish person, for example, prays to the God that they believe in and says, please reveal yourself to me. Um, if God hears that and sends them an evangelist, a Christian evangelist and says, Hey, by the way, Jesus is Lord. Let me, let me tell you the gospel, how you can have your sins forgiven, how, you know, the Messiah came uh, to forgive you of your sins. And, you know, so clearly at that point, the true God heard that Jewish person who was crying out to him. Um, and God is more than capable of doing that. I also believe that God is sovereign over salvation. And so God can use any means that he wants to. So he can use the misguided prayers of anyone. Um, and he can, if he so chooses, he could honor those prayers. But it's very clear that no one, according to scripture, according to Jesus himself, no one comes to God except through Jesus. So um, does that mean that you know the 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 god that muslims or the god that jewish people worship and i'm talking again about non messianic non christian jews non believing jews i would say um does that mean that they're worshiping like a demon a false god well i certainly do believe that there are demons who accept worship as gods or does it mean that they're just praying into the void you know that they're that they're just worshiping a a concept um i don't know i can't answer that i i will say you have to deal with each religion individually uh the way that 
the Islamic scripture, the Quran, was revealed to the author of the Quran. It, it seems like it was demonic in its origin. Um, so I, I'm certainly open to the idea that Allah is a false god, actually a demon. Um, and I understand that that's a very offensive statement to to Muslims. Um, but but again, I'm working from within a Christian framework trying to make sense of this. Um, I would also say that um, the way that rabbinical Judaism came about, to my understanding, is it was formed after 70 AD and the destruction of the temple by the remaining sect of Judaism, which was not destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was invaded, uh, that wasn't the, the sect of the Nazarenes. The sect of the Nazarenes, that they, they were Christians. They're just Christians. But um, the other sect that was still extant after the destruction of Jerusalem were the Pharisees. And we all know, if you read the New Testament, you know how the Pharisees felt about Jesus, at least the majority of Pharisees. So there's a reason why modern-day rabbinical Judaism expressly denies the Messiahship of Jesus. It's because it was, um, it was formulated in an era after the temple, was destroyed. So they, so it's not the same, um, form of religion that Moses revealed. And it was formulated as a way of how do we continue to worship God without the temple, without the physical temple, and yet without becoming Christians and acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. So, um, the, you know, so, so who are they, who are they praying to? I don't know, but I do know that my invitation to all Muslims and Jews who don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord is to to repent and trust in Jesus. Uh Jesus is the the word of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God in the flesh. And to my knowledge neither Islam nor Judaism contains or or teaches a tenet that says your sins can be atoned for by God himself, not just overlooked, uh, not just passed over, but actually atoned for. And according to scripture, without, this is from the, the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And um, so there is no temple anymore to offer blood sacrifices. Uh, there is no blood sacrifice system in Islam, at least not officially. And so therefore we need a blood sacrifice Jesus is that perfect blood sacrifice. So I, I invite Muslims and Jews to come to the true God who is only accessible through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right. Excellent answer. Thank you, Joel. Uh, uh, I'll go ahead and unmute Dirty Dan. Dirty Dan, are you there? Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and unmute you in just a second to go ahead and ask your question. Okay, go ahead, Dirty Dan. You can talk hey. to you. Uh, Joel, I really appreciate the chance to be able to talk to you. Um, I My have pleasure. a question that kind of, uh, it's, it's a two parter, but the first part is very short, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So, uh, like, so under your Christian framework, do you accept like the idea, the overarching narrative that, uh, God is all powerful and omnipotent? Yes. Properly defined. Yes. Okay. So like, the question I had is how do you reconcile the belief that one God is omnipotent, but also the paradox of like omnipotency that comes with like, can God create a rock that's uh, too heavy for God to lift? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I get, I get asked that quite a lot, which you can imagine why. Um, because remember when I said, yes, God's omnipotent, but properly defined. Yes. Okay. So that proper definition has some parameters. So, one of the things we believe as Christians is God is the standard by which we judge all truth. God is by definition true. Um, and what is true must accord with the laws of logic, which incidentally, the laws of logic are also an expression of God's perfectly logical nature. So um, what that means is that because God is perfectly consistent within himself and totally non-contradictory, again, getting back to him being the basis of logic, God's attributes can't logically contradict one another. So God's omnipotence, we have to understand God's omnipotence in light of his truthfulness. Um, so what that means is we, uh, God's omnipotence must not be defined in a way that, um, that, that, that creates a contradiction. So, um, you know, uh, can God, can God create a rock so big he can't lift? Uh, 
seems to create a logical contradiction because God would be both omnipotent and non-omnipotent. That's just a problem not only for Christian theism, but it's a problem for logic in general. I mean, an atheist, anybody would have the same question. Just can there be a concept of omnipotence in which it is also non-omnipotent? In other words, what we're really asking, break it down to its rudiments, is can A equal non-A in the same sense at the same time? And the answer to that is no, because logic is necessarily true. Logic must obtain necessarily. Um, so, is God all-powerful? Yes. But God is also perfectly consistent within himself, within his own nature. So that omnipotence does not um, entail any kind of logical contradiction. It's just, it's like, you know, um, can God lie? No. Well, does that mean God's not omnipotent? Well, no, because there's nothing in the concept of omnipotence as it actually obtains in God's nature that would require God, who is perfectly truthful, to be able to lie. That's not a limitation of God. That's a, that's a strength. It means God is perfectly consistent within himself. The benefit of that for us is that um, not only does it mean we can perfectly trust God, um, but we also can trust God not to violate his nature. So when God makes a promise, he is guaranteed to follow through on it. And as a Christian believer, I find great comfort in that because I look at, you know, when I experience hardship in my life, and I this is getting a little off track, but I, I think it's germane still to the question. I look at Romans 8, 28 through 39, and I see the incredible promises about how God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I say, well, I'm, I'm banking on that promise to be true. Can I really take that promise to the bank? Yes, because God is perfectly consistent. He cannot lie. He, he cannot and will not ever break his promises. And, and, and that does not negate his omnipotence because omnipotence isn't just whatever we want to define it as. Omnipotence actually has its definition rooted in God, just like all of his attributes are. God is not adhering to some external standard of omnipotence. God's omnipotence adheres to the standard that is his own nature. So God is self-defining and, um, and, and all of his attributes are defined as they, as they obtain within his nature. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, well, it for me, it doesn't make sense on a logical level because you have to have the, like the pre, uh, the pre-assumed beliefs of the existence of God in the first place to be able to accept the logical terms of, of, uh, omnipotence being a thing that, uh, that can't be self-contradictory because omnipotence in itself creates the ability to, to have exceptions or not well in 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 the concept of looking at god if you say that something is omnipotent then you have to be able to accept the the logical contradiction that that makes because that would prove in omnipotence well that makes sense. if that's the case if it's if it's possible for god who is a necessarily existent being you know we're stepping into the Christian worldview here for the sake of argument. Okay. I, I'm not assuming you are a Christian, but again, you're asking a Christian, um, and you're looking for an inconsistency in the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview. So if, um, if you're asking for there to be a logical contradiction within God, who is by definition, the source of logic, then what you're saying is logic does not obtain. Logic is not real. Logic is actually false. Is that, is that accurate? Would you under, would you agree with that? Well, well, to not get too deep into the woods, I would say that logic is a man made concept, and for I think having having a worldview that is self referential when it comes to obtaining logic gets you in a very a very weird spot uh, epistemologically. Like uh, whenever it comes to obtaining truth or or uh, or doing any of that, you kind of get roadblocked. Whenever you set up a worldview or ascribe to one, I would say that um, is self-referential. So, so do you believe? So, in your worldview, logic is a human convention. Logic is conventional. Well, uh, what do you mean by conventional? Logic is something that we invented. It's not. It's not something that's necessarily true about all possible worlds or the world in which we live. Uh, 
yeah, I would, I would, I would bite the bullet and say that it's, it's a, it's a human-made concept that we, that we either like subscribe to or do not. Okay, so in that, in in your view, then logic is not really a description of the way the world really is. It's just something that we've come up with, but the world itself is is non-logical. Well, logic is for for my worldview is more of a tool to to reach proper inclu- uh, conclusions and. If you're coming from a set of, of pre, uh, presuppositions that say that this is true and we're going to accept that this is true without the, uh, the pre-thought of, of understanding that we can't make strong statements about the metaphysical, that really gets you into some deep water logically or, or talking about any other, uh, like philosophical concepts. Okay. When you say, when you say proper conclusions, proper by what standard? Uh, like the one that creates the most positive utility, I would say. Uh, positive. Well, I would. Uh, okay, so 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 logic is a convention that we've come up with to reach certain ends. Yeah, so it's a tool that we use for us to be able to uh, reason out our beliefs in a way that that creates a, uh, a more consistent truth. Oh, okay. So con- consistent though, consistent truth, a truth as a concept itself requires logic for it to be a meaningful concept because, if, sure, but, um, but, but you're so, so truth is not objective in this, in your view then any more than logic is right. Um, I would say that truth is a concept that we all ascribe to in a certain way. There's better ways to do it than not, and that's what us arguing is. But better by because, like, we, if we have certain axiomatic beliefs that hmm. are well between the two of us, irreconcilable. Yeah. To the logical framework you're setting yourself up and saying that truth is God, and God is all powerful and omnipotent. Well, yeah, you have so, to be careful. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying truth as an abstract is God and then personifying or anthropomorphizing the you know truth. I'm saying uh, truth is is what is perfectly in accordance with with God's nature and what God knows to be true. But um, one thing I would really we have to probably wrap this up soon. But one thing I would really encourage you to think about. I actually wrote an article on this um, on my website, thethink.institute. It's called Six Reasons Why Logic Is Not Just a Human Convention. And I have a podcast episode on, on this as well, which is linked there on the site. But, um, in, in your view, a world where logic is merely a convention means that the world itself is not describable truthfully in terms of the laws of logic. In, in, in other words, that world is an incoherent world. It is actually a non-logical world. So what that means is, all of our efforts to impose logic on our experience are actually literally exercises in falsehood because the world in your conception is not actually logical. Logic is merely a man-made convention. Now, there's more problems with it as well because if logic is merely a man-made convention, then um, there is no obligation for, for either you or I to adhere to the same laws of logic, which means, um, you, you might, you might uh, express your view to me and I might say, uh, I might interpret your view to mean the exact opposite of what you just said. And there is no obligation for me to think otherwise. I can literally negate your view because the law of non-contradiction is not something which actually obtains in the actual world. In reality, I can negate your view and there's no obligation for me not to. And my negation of, of your view, literally me saying that you, me interpreting your view to mean the exact opposite of what you just said is actually more in line with the way the universe actually works because the universe in your view is non-logical. So me interpreting your position to mean the exact opposite of what you meant is actually more in accordance with reality than me um, trying to adhere to these man-made laws of logic, which actually fly in the face of the way reality actually is. So if this all sounds incoherent and, and crazy, it's because it is. It's because we don't actually live that way. We can't. We couldn't have a, a, any kind of discourse 
in that world. Um, furthermore, laws of logic that are merely conventional, something that we invent, they're not really laws at all. There's, there, there's, there's no teeth to them. So you, for you to object that I'm being illogical or me to object that you're being illogical is just us breathing sounds out into the air. They don't actually, uh, you, you know, our complaints would have no bearing on the way things actually are, no correspondence to the real world at all. And, and I, and dare I say that by even positing a world in which logic is just a human convention, I think you're showing that you don't actually believe it's a convention because you want me to understand you logically. You know, you want me to understand that you mean what you mean, you don't mean what you don't mean, and that you, um, you know, the law of excluded middle that, that what you're saying is either true or false, not in between. So our human experience, um, it's, it's, it just, it's, it's impossible. Um, let me say this logic is discovered, not invented. You know, um, you didn't have to invent the laws of logic. Now, you might have learned about them, but Aristotle didn't invent the laws of logic. You know, I did not invent the laws of logic. They're discovered as we, as we reflect upon our language and the way that things are, um, and the way that things aren't. The laws of logic, um, are, are unavoidable. They're, they're necessarily true because if they're not true, then they are true. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to really rethink that. No, I, for sure. I would have. I do have more to push back on, but I do want to give the uh, the spotlight to somebody else. I really appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, I appreciate the question. No problem. Awesome. Thanks, Dirty Dan. Um, uh, all right. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so I have a question from Kachi. Um, it's a sentiment that I think needs to be uh, emphasized a lot more. Again, if you guys have questions, we're going to be doing this for about another fifty. 15, 25 minutes or so. We're cool with that, Joel? Yeah, that's perfect. Cool. All right. Um, so, uh, Kachi says, can the presence of God be proved with human science or is God an, 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 an omnipotent force that does not exist in the material plane, meaning science cannot prove nor disprove God's existence or lack thereof? Hmm. Great question. So, can you perform an experiment in a laboratory somewhere using the scientific method that gives you, um, uh, some sort of physical results proving that God exists or that God is real. I don't see how you could do that, but that doesn't mean that God's, the reality of God is somehow disconnected from science or that science and religion and faith are non overlapping magisteria, as some people say. Um, and the reason why is this science itself, the very, the very uh, utility of science and its value and meaningfulness as an endeavor presupposes the triune God of scripture. Now, let me give you a historical example first, and then uh, maybe a biblical explanation and, and possibly a quick philosophical explanation. Historically, science, as we know it, arose in a Christian context. The scientific revolution was fostered and launched by men like Isaac Newton, Tycho Brahe, uh, Johannes Kepler, Galileo Galilei, and these were professing Christians operating on Christian assumptions. Historically, uh, at, even at their peak, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the Muslim Golden Age, none of these civilizations, non-Christian civilizations, gave us science. Does that mean they didn't give us philosophy or mathematics? No, but they didn't give us science, and the question pertains to science, so that's why I'm talking about science. Christian civilization gave us science because, here's the, here's the um, I guess I'll go to the philosophical explanation. Science requires certain presuppositions about the world, certain prior beliefs about the cosmos, the, the world, that are perfectly in accordance with Christianity. For example, the possibility of inductive reasoning, uh, the uniformity in nature. The, in other words, the idea that we can do an experiment on Tuesday and with the same conditions do the same experiment on Wednesday and we would expect to get the same result. If we didn't believe that, we'd have, we wouldn't repeat Science. We wouldn't repeat uh, experiments. We, we, we couldn't do science. Science is predicated on the idea that we can repeat experiments. And if something is different, then 
we want to look for a reason why. We assume that there is a reason why because we would expect things to be the same. Science presupposes that there's a normality, a regularity, a, a, a consistency, a faithfulness in the warp and woof of reality that makes science possible. Not only that, but it also assumes that there are immaterial, universal, absolute, objective, knowable laws which govern the world such that the world is intelligible to us and and we can make sense of it. Um, it assumes that that uh, that you know data is meaningful, fa- data are meaningful, facts are meaningful, and it also has to presuppose the meaningfulness of the way that we process that data with our minds. Uh, that our minds are are in some sense geared towards truth. Our, our truth-seeking faculties are just that, truth-seeking faculties. So our senses work, our reasoning works. Um, you know, th- there's a correspondence between the math in my head and the way the world actually works. You know, Einstein was perplexed by that. Why is the math in my head? Well, how come I can do these a priori uh, synthetic, this is getting into Kant a little bit, but these a priori synthetic operations in my head, and then it turns out I go out and do this in the world, and the world behaves the same way as the numbers and the formulae that I have in my head. Why is that? Well, these are all Christian presuppositions. And um, so anyone who does science, anyone who does mathematics, I would say, without a, a, an expressly Christian framework, is either doing so ignorantly or in contradiction with his own worldview. Scripturally, we can look at passages like Psalm 111, which say that the works of God are studied by all those who delight in him. Psalm 19, which say the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, other passages in Proverbs that say that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the, it's the glory of a of kings to search it out. Um, and then even going back to Genesis 127, where it says that God created man in the, in his own image. Well, what is the image of God? Well, we would expect that we would be rational. We would be truth seeking. Uh, we would value truth. Even the idea that we think, you know, science is, is valuable, um, because truth is valuable. Knowledge is valuable. These are all Christian presuppositions. So, all of this is a very long-winded way of saying, the minute you've stepped into the lab with the intention of doing any kind of scientific inquiry, you've already had to presuppose the triune God of Scripture. There is no other conception of God or of a metaphysical scheme for the universe, which authorizes us epistemologically to engage in anything like scientific inquiry. Now, that's not to say you, can, you can't do science and be an atheist. There are plenty of atheistic scientists. But they're doing so inconsistently. They're a Muslim scientist. They're doing it inconsistently. You know, there are pagan scientists and they're doing it inconsistently. Um, and that's not just me like making assertions. I mean, investigate the worldview, investigate the Christian worldview, see if it leads to science. I think I've just made the case that it does humbly, but investigate the worldview of any other, of any scientist. See if their fundamental presuppositions about the way the world and the human mind and the laws governing the universe and God, see the way those, I see what are the natural entailments and implications of those presuppositions? Do they lead to the conditions that would give rise to science? And, um, they don't. <laughs> I've, I've yet to see one that does. I think by the time you, enumerate all the necessary preconditions, as people say, uh, for intelligibility of the universe that makes science possible. Well, you're just, you're, you're talking about the Christian worldview at that point. So the, so, so again, the long and short of it is by the time you've stepped in the lab and you intend on doing science, you've already had to presuppose that, um, that God is real. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for that answer. Um, okay. Sorry. There was a bunch of memes being spammed in the, the, uh, questions chat. So let's see if I can find, I think we have enough time for maybe one more question. Um, cool. let's see here. We'll end it in, uh, in a, uh, let's see if we have one from somebody that hasn't asked one yet. Um, so how about, Okay, I'll give you guys just a second to ask it one last question, and if it's good, uh, you can ask it yourself. 
hope somebody's somebody's uh any question you want mr crano uh joel is a christian apologist if you want to talk to him you can okay a bunch of people are typing right now just give us i'll give them a second Again, hey, thanks again for so much again for doing this, Joel. Man, it's my pleasure. I love doing this. I appreciate the chance to do it. Um, hey, man, we, we love having you. Uh, we really do. Um, okay, we'll do this one <clears throat> because it's a hobby horse of mine. Um, I can't pronounce that for a uh, blue trostis. Uh, asks, what are your thoughts on Molinism versus Calvinism? Oh, <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on Molinism. Um, but, uh, you know, I re- I reject it based on scripture. Molinism is a scheme by which, um, God relies on middle knowledge, the knowledge of all counterfactuals. In other words, all things that could happen. And he is, Oh man, you might feel like I'm misrepresenting this here. I'm not trying to believe me. Um, so let me know if I'm like straw manning the Molinist view. But, uh, the, the way the scheme works is God has knowledge of all counterfactuals, all things that could happen in any given, you know, uh, result, uh, according to any action that he, he takes. Um, so practically applied to humanity, God knows every choice that you would make when presented with a certain set of circumstances. And of course I affirm that, but the problem with Molinism, as I understand it, is that it turns God either into the grand computer in the sky, chugging out results based on, you know, uh, probability inputs, you know, uh, like, like, uh, remember last year in the beginning of 2020, when all those models were coming out for how fast COVID was going to spread and how many people were going to die. You know, those models are only as good as the inputs that people put into them, the assumptions that go into them. And Molinism either turns God into that kind of, um, you know, computer spitting out results or God is some kind of poker player just trying to play the, the hand that he's been dealt, which I, I've heard is a phrase that William Lane Craig has used. God's got to play the cards that he's been dealt. And I reject that because that's not what scripture teaches. The witness of scripture is that God declares the end from the beginning and, and, and that, that it's, it's his decree that determines the way things are going to turn out. Think about the idea that, um, think about the idea that God's predestination is based on him looking down the corridors of time to see what we would do, which is how it was explained to me by my Armenian, uh, professor at seminary. I won't tell you his name. Um, but, he described it as God looks down the corridors of time to see what we would do and then acts accordingly, predestines us based on the choice that he foresees that we will make. So if God sees that you're the kind of person who would, um, you know, accept him, then he actualizes that world. Um, and, and then uh, a corollary of that is that some people believe that God desires the maximum number of people to be saved and so therefore he actualizes the world in which numerically the most people will accept him based on the circumstances that are presented to him. Here's the glaring issue with this. Who's in control in that scenario? You know, who's dealing God the cards? Who's putting in the inputs into the simulation? The Bible says that God is sovereign. Um, there is no one above God giving him you know, predetermining what people are going to be like. You yourself, I am, we are creations of God. So our predilections and our tendencies and our tastes and, and, um, all those attributes that we have by both nature and nurture, according to God, those are written in his book and it's his book. He wrote the book. That's Psalm 139. It's his book. So, the idea that God has to deal the cards 
that he's or play the cards he's been dealt, or that God is in any way out of control when it comes to who you are and how you would be and what choices you would make. Uh, that that's uh, to use the technical theological term poppycock. It's nonsense. It's it's unbiblical, and it has more to do with the you know sort of a you know a, God, a concept of God of the philosophers than it does the the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is intimately involved in our creation, in the steps that we take in life, and you know He's knitting us together in our mother's womb, and. Uh, God, God is, God is, uh, so God is totally sovereign. So again, if I misrepresented Molinism, you know, I, I apologize. I wasn't trying to, but, um, I think hopefully my description of it is, is accurate enough. You know, when you actually read scripture and you look at the intricate details that had to, uh, that, that had to occur, that had to happen just so in order for the Lord Jesus Christ to be brought into the world. You see a God who is so intricately involved in his creation, declaring the end from the beginning and use, utilizing every, every means that he needs to in order to accomplish his ends perfectly. Um, not only that, but he's also bringing good out of everything that happens. Romans 8, 28 through 39. That there's just, there's the Molinist conception of God is foreign to the biblical picture of God the God who reveals himself. And I dare say it, the Molinist concept of God is foreign to our experience of God. You know, um, when we, when we pray to God, we pray to the God who is sovereign and who is intimately present with us. He has Lordship. And John frame talks about the, the, um, attributes of Lordship being control, authority, and presence. That's the God that we pray to, not the divine computer in the sky who has, you know, um, predetermined what he would do based on calculations of counterfactuals, uh, you know, plugging and chugging based on inputs that he didn't have control over. So, um, in short, Molinism is, I, I think it's, you know, maybe the best scheme that Armenians could come up with or, or Romanists, but Roman Catholics could come up with. But um, both Roman Catholicism and Arminianism start with man, whereas the scriptural view of God starts with God and comes down. And so, um, you know, just the latter is going to be infinitely preferable and, and I think infinitely more satisfying and just infinitely more true than um, than the Molinist scheme. I, I actually totally agree with that because I think, you know, Who's the? Why is there a limiter on God in the? In, in, uh, what worlds he's actually able to create? Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Hey, thank you. I think that we'll we'll call it a night. So this was a little bit short, but you know, um, my uh, I'm gonna go watch a show with my wife, and that's important, actually. Amen. So uh, I hope you guys have a good night. Um, be sure to check out Joel and his YouTube page and his website um, thethink.institute and uh, the Think Institute on YouTube check out announcements the links are there yeah and real quick if you listen to podcasts my podcast is called The Think Podcast it depends on which platform you search I'm on all the platforms Spotify Apple Podcasts um, Podcast Addict but uh, depending on which one you're, you're you're looking it up on it would uh, try The Think Institute if that doesn't work, try the Think Podcast, and then um, it's uh, you. You should be able to figure out very quickly which one's mine. There's there's another Think Podcast, but it's it's a little different. Um, so anyway, yeah, the podcast is is uh, free and available for you as well. So Ellipsis, thank you so much for the opportunity. I always always enjoy it. And uh, hey, uh, same here. All right, guys, I'm going to close the room. Um, so go do other things, and. Uh, have a good night, everybody. Okay. Peace out. Thanks, Ellipsis. Okay, bye. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to 
thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. 